turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, or if you have the notes, uh, you can follow along there as well if that helps you study. Well, last week in 1 Timothy 5, we looked at a future possible event where there would be widows who would need to be taken care of. Basically, they become church employees. It wasn't a handout. They actually would have a ministry of a number of things with the children, with the poor, with uh, just serving those in the body of Christ in many different ways, hospitality needs. And in our culture here in the United States at this point, that really isn't the way we would handle things. It's not our culture. I can tell you, however, we have had at Calvary San Diego when I pastored there, women that their husbands didn't die, but their husbands took off and left them with no means of financial support. And in a couple of situations, they came from a very hard life. They, at one time, were drug addicts and prostitutes. They got married. They had children. A lot of them were married before they came to Christ. And uh, that was really their only means of support, <laughs> would be that of prostitution. They really had no a means to get a job otherwise. And uh, one time, the husband got put in prison for dealing arms. And uh, there's a couple other situations where we, we sense, like, we, we need to help this mom out, especially having to raise two kids. And uh, we created a job for one, and we had one have a job, and we did that for a season at the same time working to give them skills where they could get a job outside the church as well. We felt that it was a temporary thing to help them get over this hump and learn to find a, be able to get a job and raise their kids. Still very, very hard to do in Southern California, isn't it? Things are just so, so crazy expensive here. So I can tell you that they, they weren't widows indeed, as Paul described them here, at least over the age of 60. None of these women were over the age of 60. Didn't have any kids. They all had kids. And uh, we saw them as widows by uh, husbands that abandoned them or widows by drugs. Their husband ran off doing drugs. Another case put in prison. Um, another just ran off, just took off. We don't know where he ended up. Um, but we did have a few of those times where we did support them, give them a job, and uh, not, not a handout. So if the, if the widows who qualified to be widows were to be supported, he turns around and says how much more pastors would be supported. So notice in verse 7, to rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his hire. The muzzle, don't muzzle an ox, that's Deuteronomy 25.4. But the labor is worthy of his wages. That's actually in the Gospel of Luke, quoting Jesus in Luke 10.7. So do make a note there that the Gospel of Luke 
Scripture. Paul calls Luke's writing Scripture, and Peter later calls Paul's writing Scripture. And uh, he quoted Deuteronomy and Luke together, both of them equal Scripture. Thus we see the canonization of the Bible. You, you know, one thing I think I need to do is get a list of questions you guys have and spend, you know, however many weeks to answer those questions. So maybe to do a study on canonization. So you, you got to sort of want it, you know what I mean? It's not like you can go, hey, we're going to have a Bible study canonization and 10,000 people show up. All right, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of these questions are being asked so many times that even nominal Christians are, are curious. But either way, we, we see this as a part of the canonization process, and I'll just leave it at that right now. So there was a group of people that did not believe that full-time elders or pastors or overseers or bishops, however you want to translate those words, the episcopos or the presbyteros, were to be financially supported. They didn't think that. They thought they needed to have a job as a plumber or carpenter or farmer and pastor. And it was a, not a, a job at all. It was sort of a hobby he did or... It was something that, that was a part of the society. And, uh, and Paul has to argue that in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He had to address that here and in and, and other places too. It Culturally, in different places. And you've got to remember, Paul wasn't going just to one culture. Okay, He was preaching to the Jewish culture, but then he was preaching to the Asia Minor culture, Turkey. But then he also went over into Europe, as you remember, in Macedonia area today, uh, it was Philippi uh, in, in, the, in uh, Greece. He went there. So there were various cultures, and, and most of them, it seemed, had a hard time being willing to pay a guy to study and talk. <laughs> okay? And, 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 and even now, even as a pastor, I've been a pastor now, uh, you know, I don't know, youth pastor, assistant pastor, add it all up. It's over 40 years that I've been a pastor. And, and guys will, will sometimes, you know, put me on the side and go, hey, how does it feel not to have to work for a living? I'll say pretty nice. Just one, one morning a week. That's it, man. Sunday morning. That's it. That's all I got to work. Golf the rest of the week. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a sweet life. So, He does say that, in particular, it's those who labor in the word and doctrine. So I, I will say, there are some pastors that take very seriously their ministry. And I know a lot of pastors that do not. They, they do the minimum. They really do. Um, they're flying everywhere and going everywhere, and you see them at this pastor's conference on one side of the world or another, they seem to be going and, and finding somehow, even though they're not speaking at the conferences, they're rubbing elbows with the big guys. And, and there's guys that, that aren't. And, and, uh, but those who are working diligently, trying to 
rightly divide the word of God and trying to really wrestle to hear from the Lord what the Spirit is saying to the church. Those men should be financially taken care of. Not only that, but they should be recognized and held in high esteem and obeyed. Look in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13. We urge you, brethren, to recognize, to give honor, to show appreciation to those who, once again, labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace amongst yourselves. So if you really want to bless your pastors, recognize them, recognize the hard work they do, hold them in high esteem, out of love, and don't argue. <laughs> Kids don't argue so then parents can enjoy, uh, you know, don't argue amongst yourselves so the pastor can enjoy being your pastor. Hebrews 13, in a similar way, in verse 17 Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who, once again, oversee you or rule over you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So it's not just that they get paid financially. He's saying there, there's, this, there's this whole thing where you are recognized, those who are in the position as a pastor, as a very honorable place, and hopefully that pastor is working hard, being a great example, and that his marriage is an example to marriages, that he as a parent is an example as a parent. He is the number one Christian in the church, living as a Christian. I mean, that, that would be wonderful. Have you noticed that if you think positively of somebody in a certain way, they want to prove you right. I saw this as a youth pastor. With junior hires and high schoolers, if you just create a positive environment and praise them for doing the right thing, even though they're not, or they're minimally doing so, but you tell them, I appreciate the fact that you're jumping this high, that they will start jumping that high. You just get up and nobody's really singing when the guy's leading worship and you just step up and go, you know, one thing I love about our youth group is you guys sing. You just really just sing with all your heart and worship God. It's such a beautiful thing. And guess what happens the next time? They, they, they desire to, to do that. Well, you know what happens when you get a group of people and they, they, in their hearts, are praying for their pastor and believing their pastor to be a great Christian, be a great husband, a great father, a, a great evangelist, a, just a, a guy shining as a light? That, that positive prayers and, and people viewing you in that way makes you want to walk in a worthy manner of their esteem of you. I mean, this makes sense, right? Billy Graham, as a young man, did not have the right stuff. I've read a few autobiographies and biographies of Billy Graham, and, and he came out of seminary a horrible pastor, and he admits it. 
And he was a part of a small church. And they were complaining. Sermons, too long, too dry, whatever it was. He was a young man. And he finally, in brokenness, just got up and just said, Look, I am as bad as you guys think I am. But I know I'm called. I know I'm not going to stay here. (laughs) But I tell you what, if you pray for this young man to do great things for God, he will. What do you think it did to the church? It just humbled them and broke them. And of course, we know what God did with Billy Graham, didn't he? No way. I mean, imagine what it would take if just a small group of people prayed for the pastors and the leaders, believing God to do great things. I believe he will, right? And so he, he's, he's letting you know there, there's just this dynamic in the church that is healthy. And if you get a guy who's really wanting to work hard, yes, he's not out with a shovel and a rake. He's not out on the farm or he's not pounding away at the blacksmiths. His work is sitting at a desk and reading, kneeling next to his chair and praying, going out and, and trying to lead people to Christ or encourage the Christians in the Lord, visiting the sick and trying to uplift those downtrodden, whatever it is the Lord's leading him to do, then that should be financially supported. Matter of fact, he says, give that guy double honor. So there are churches that believe the pastor should be paid twice as much as if he were working at whatever job in the community. Now, this is always the big question. How much do you pay a pastor? Chuck Smith and the Calvary's made it very, very clear. The pastor should not get paid a lot more than the average person in his community is getting paid. Because it would be a stumbling block. You know, the pastor's house is just a little bit better than everybody in the church. His car is just a little bit nicer than everybody's in the church. The grocery store, he's able to buy a little bit better food than everybody else in the church. That could be a stumbling block. Chuck just like, it just, it's basically right at what everybody else is making. I know in the Poyman ministry, Bill Holdridge, he, he said a, a, a church of around 100 people or less, you know, it's basically like a principal of a school's salary, whatever that would be. California, what is that, 300000 a year or something? I don't know. <laughs> um, so maybe not the best example in California. I don't know. Um, and then if the church is, you know, several hundred people or even close to a thousand, it would be like that of a superintendent of a school district. But again, that may be true. It may not be true, depending on the community. If you live in a farming community versus, a, a, you know, an urban society versus a rural society, it can, it can vary. And, uh, you know, in the Old Testament time, the way the Lord set it up is the tithe, 100% of the tithe, the 10% of the people was strictly for the salaries of the priests. And then on top of that, they had a number of offerings they had to bring. 
it actually added up to about 23 and a third percent of your income. But you got to remember that was also including running the civil government, paying for judges and, and uh, so forth as well. So 23 and a third percent here in California, we'd like those taxes, wouldn't we? Um, yeah, I don't think so. But um, in the church here, you know, it, it's really just one of those things where the leaders, and we have a church board, in case you don't know, it's Kirk right here, and uh, Dennis right over there, and myself at this time, we're the board, and and before I got here, they set the salary, and, uh, and that's what it was, and I didn't even really know what it was until afterwards. It wasn't an issue to me whatsoever. But um, here he's saying, yeah, don't, don't only not be reluctant to pay them, but pay them doubly. Uh, now, do I think he meant that literally? No, I do not. But there are especially some Pentecostal churches who, who really don't have a lot of verses memorized, but they got this one memorized. <laughs> and uh, Pastor, you know John 3.16? No, nah, I'd have to look that one up. What about uh, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18? Oh, yeah, I can quote those. And uh, anyway, there are guys, unfortunately, like that, and they give a black eye to Christianity. We looked earlier in 1 Timothy 3, and the pastor's not to be a lover of money. Well, the Scripture says, and he quotes, he quotes the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.4, about uh, oxen, why it's threshing out the grain. Now, if you would picture a big giant slab, they usually had big rocks out there, or they would create something hard. And then they would have the oxen carry along a big wooden object with holes in it that would be heavy. They would put rocks on it, different amount of rocks. At the first, not so much, but as you go, it gets heavier and heavier. And as it rolled over the wheat, this big uh, rectangle piece of wood, the oxen would pull it and drag it around as he went in a circle. The chaff would break away from the wheat. And if you know when that happens, it sort of has a popping to it. So some of the wheat is going to pop out of the area and and come over to where the oxen was walking. And they would sometimes put a harness over the, or a muzzle over the, the oxen so they could control them. But he said, no, when they're going around in a circle, you don't need that muzzle on them. Take it off. And if they want to eat some of the wheat that they're, that's popping out for them, and they want to eat it as they're doing it, don't stop them. That would be wrong because they're worthy of eating some of it since they're the one doing all the work, so to speak. And, uh, and, and the Bible says it's not because God had some great concern for oxen that he said that. Um, it was simply uh, a principle. And Jesus talks about this in Luke 10, 7, in the second part of the quote of Paul's there, that um, when you guys go out in twos, he's talking to the apostles, you go to a house and stay there, Whatever they eat, you eat. Whatever they drink, they drink. And they should supply it for you freely. They should give that to you. For the labor is worthy of his wages. But don't go from house to house. Don't try to improve. You know, you're living as somebody, you know, with a little 1,200 square foot house and they're, 
you know, living at this degree. And then the rich guy in town says, hey, come on up to my house. You can stay there. It's a lot roomier. And, you know, we're having steak, steak and lobster because they wouldn't have said lobster in, in the Gospels. Jews don't eat lobster. But anyway, you get the idea. He's saying, don't try to improve your situation. Stay there. Eat. Don't pay anything because you're, you're basically worthy of those higher in Deuteronomy 18.1, the priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance of Israel. They would never own land. They would never be able to own houses. They shall eat the offering of the Lord made by fire and his portion. It's interesting, not to go into detail, but they were given outside the city walls a portion of land to have a garden and to have an animal, but they could never own anything. Their inheritance strictly the Lord's. And so he's saying that as they're offering the peace offerings, there's a many different offerings, not the sin offering. The sin offering was burnt up completely, but the peace offering and the fellowship offering, consecration offering, they barbecued that meat. They could take it and eat it, and that would be their portion. And uh, he's saying, let them, again, be provided for by the work they're doing. And so um, there were those in Paul's times that were against it. And Paul talks about this. First of all, he tells the Corinthians that they were making money an issue when he was there. Therefore, he didn't take a penny from them. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7 through 9, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? What's happened with Paul is it backfired on him because these guys came up from Jerusalem and they were charging big fees for them to come and speak at the churches. But when Paul had come, they paid him nothing. So in their minds, Paul is worth nothing. And the more we have to pay these guys, it's because they're the greater guys. And Paul is saying, so when I came and charged you nothing, you saw my ministry as having no value. That's not the case, even though that's emotionally the way you feel about it. Actually, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. While Paul was in Corinth, other churches that he had started sent him offerings to provide, and that's how he got by. Of course, we also know he made tents, but that's how it operated and worked. And... Um, in verse 9, and when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked of the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being a burdensome to you, so I will keep myself. So Paul said, I have a unique ministry. And because I'm coming into town and I'm starting Christianity there and you start giving me money, it's the very first thing people are going to think. This is a money scheme. So the churches that Paul was ministering to, he wouldn't take money for that very reason. Another reason is Paul had to go and come as the Lord directed him. So he would go into some cities, even though there was a big revival, he would stay there three days. But in Ephesus, he stayed there three years. In Corinth, he stayed there six months. But he didn't want people thinking or saying, oh, well, Paul stayed there three days because they weren't coming up with any money. You know, he stayed there in Corinth six months because they were doing pretty good. Then when they started fizzling, he left there to go find the next gig where he could get more money. That had nothing to do with why he was staying 
at certain amount of times at certain places. So he took no money from anywhere where he was at. God was providing offerings from other churches and other households outside the place he was ministering for that very reason, so they could not get a mixed signal. But Paul said, my example was not an example of what you should be doing for your pastors there in the Corinth area. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 3 to verse 14, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do I not have a right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along believing wives or as also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, Cephas, Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no rights to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends the flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God's concerned about? Sure he is a little bit, but that's not why he said it. Or does he not say altogether for our sake, for our sake? No doubt this is written that he who plows should plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should be our partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the holy things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord commanded those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And then, of course, to the church in the area of Galatia region, he says, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Again, most likely referring to financial things. Interesting, I lived for a few years in a farming community with a pastor. And in that farming community, they didn't have a lot of cash, but they put a big freezer outside the church there. And it was simply for the senior pastor. So when they killed a pig or they killed a cow, they would set aside a portion of that and put it in the freezer and tell the pastor, hey, got some bacon in there for you. They also had a refrigerator and people who would have their gardens and so forth, they would bring and put all kinds of eggs and fresh vegetables. And that was actually a big part of his salary. And uh, I'll tell you what, that was some of the best eating I had ever had. I lived there for about a year and a half with that pastor. But that was sort of what I see in Galatians 6, 6. It's like, may not be money, but that what you do have, um, you can share with them. Well, going on to verse 19 and 20 now. Do not receive an accusation against the elder except from two or three witnesses. Does for those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So the first knee-jerk reaction is do not receive an accusation against one of the leaders in the church. That's the first knee-jerk reaction. I don't believe it. I don't accept it. I don't receive it. Why is this? Because you've got to understand that Satan's plan is to try to hurt the power of the word in the church. 
So if Satan can get people consciously or subconsciously disrespecting the leadership of the church, they will disrespect what they have to say. Right? And, and this is his plan. Because God's word is so powerful. Right? I mean, we could just simply read it and, and we would all be edified because you can't go wrong. That's why it's like really hard to have a bad sermon because you're teaching the word of God. Even if you do a bad job, God's word's gonna get out and, and, and encourage people. So when you really think about it, um, this is the main plan of the enemy is to try to get the church to have less respect, less admiration, thinking the pastor or the leaders are hypocrites Thus, when they get up to speak, you have already discounted a lot of what they had to say because of you, your sense of disrespect towards them. Clark said it this way in his commentary. The reason of the difference is evident. Those whose business it is to correct others will usually have many enemies. Great caution, therefore, should be used in admitting accusations against such a person. So in other words, the pastor's job is to say hard things to hear. I mean, it's just, husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. You know, that's, if you're not doing that, it's convicting. Are you, you know, it's always interesting to see those who are tithing. I could talk about tithing and they're just... But people that are being convicted about tithing are going, oh, I hate this guy. Talking about money again. Even though I had to talk about it in a year, in his mind, it's like yesterday. They're getting mad because it's hard for them to obey in that area of their life. If the marriage is having a problem, you say, wives, submit to your husband, respect him, honor him. The wives are all mad, you know. And, and so as you go through the Bible, there is a lot of rebuke in the Bible. There's more negative truth than there is positive truth because it's trying to help you understand what the truth really is. It's not this, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that, it's this. And so also it is a leader's job at time to rebuke people in the church for whatever reason that might be. And so he's basically saying that a guy who's a pastor over decades is going to have pretty much offended everybody in the community if you give him enough time, right? I mean, if he's there one year, he's the greatest guy in the world. Second year, not so great. After 30 years, everybody at some point has been, you know, heard something and, and, and they have a little upsetness towards any, any leader, but especially the pastor. So again, he, he's saying that you, you got to realize that the first knee-jerk reaction is don't receive an accusation because love believes all things, hopes all things, endure all things. Now, except when there are two or three witnesses, not two or three gossipers, okay? Big difference. This goes back to the, the very law itself, the very nature of any society, 
In Deuteronomy 19.15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So even if it wasn't a pastor or a leader, just really if you were in, in a civil court, in a Jewish court, you would have to have at least two, better yet, three witnesses who saw it before somebody could be found guilty. Okay, so in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul, speaking against the leaders in Corinth who were not respecting him, he said in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, this will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before, I foretell you as it were present the second time. Now being absent, I write those to, who are sinned before to all the rest, if I come again, I will not spare. <laughs> wow. Paul is saying, I've got the witnesses. This isn't, this isn't gossip. This isn't secondhand. You guys are out and out disrespecting me as the father of that church, as an apostle of Christ. And when I come, um, believe me, I'm coming to judge those who are not preaching correct doctrine and who are dividing the church. And um, Calvin says this in his commentary explaining about Satan's tricks. He says this, It is indeed a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as to gradually bring their teaching into contempt. In this way, not only is wrong done to the innocent people whose reputation is undeservedly injured, but the authority of God's holy teaching is diminished. That is the goal. You don't have to find a guilty pastor. You just got to slurry his name and his reputation enough that you can convince a certain percentage of people to think he's guilty. Do you guys remember Judge Thomas, our Supreme Court judge now? I remember that was really the first thing I had seen in my adult life, observing him uh, getting uh, questioned by the possibility of him becoming a Supreme Court judge. And they were coming and just pounding him the most horrible things without proof. And then they found Anita Hill. And she had these crazy, you know, her big moment was there was a Coke can with a pubic hair on the top of it. Now you can understand he's black, she's black. And as she's handing him the Coke, he says, whoa, does that pubic hair on top of the can get you excited basically? That was the big reveal. I didn't believe a word that came out of that woman's mouth. But yet it just pounded and pounded. And now people will say, well, you know, a lot of those Supreme Court judges are really corrupt guys like Thomas. And I'm saying, you've got to be kidding. That guy had an impeccable reputation. And far as I'm concerned, it held tight. But yet Anita Hill went on to become a multimillionaire as a speaker of, of being a, an oppressed woman. 
And I just remember thinking, this guy's reputation is injured till the day he dies by probably half of the country who, who believed her report. And then we saw Kavanaugh. <laughs> and again, this, this lady was speaking, and I'm going, I don't believe a word she says. You can tell she's been coached, and it just seems completely untruthful. And I'm not a person of discernment. But when you were 14 years old, you wrote in a junior high yearbook some weird saying. I'm like going, 14 years old? I don't even remember being 14. Do we even have a yearbook? And what did I write in it? Oh, my God. I have no idea. And yet they just destroyed that guy. And then after it's over, she admits, oh, uh, none of it's true. She admitted it was a lie. But again, you saw the destruction. And probably more than half of America is always going to think that Judge Kavanaugh is to some degree a guy who gets drunk and sexually molests little kids. That's the way they're going to think of it. And so again here, it is Satan's plan and desire in the church any way, shape, and form he can to damage the leaders, not just the pastor, but any leader in the church reputation so the church less respects them, more importantly, what they say. This is why we must have a solid knee-jerk reaction of, I don't receive that accusation. I don't believe it. That is wrong. It's, it's absolutely not true. But then after two or three witnesses, then now it needs to be investigated. Now it needs to be looked into. So in 1 Peter 5, we know that that's, that enemy Satan, in verse 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Even Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. And I've had people say, well, you know, he probably did eat a little bit much or drink a little bit much. You know, but he didn't get drunk. He just was, you know, a party guy. I've heard people say that. I'm like, really? They also said he was demon-possessed. Did he also have a little demon in him? Not a lot of demon. Now, these are just out-and-out out smears. He's a drunkard. Jesus never came close to being drunk. Jesus was a glutton. Jesus never came close to being a glutton. And nor did Jesus ever come close to being demon-possessed. And, of course, they said many other horrible things about him and the apostles. You might remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Rejoice when they speak falsely about you, because you can go all the way back throughout the history of mankind. And every one of God's righteous men that stood for God, prophets or patriarchs, they were all lied about. I think of Moses, all the leaders of Israel, and then all of Israel came against him and Aaron. They said, you've raised yourself up as a king. You've taken all our wealth. And Moses is like, God, you know I don't want to be here. And you know I don't want to be these guys' king. And you know I didn't ever take one thing, not even a donkey did I ever take from any one of these guys. 
But boy, they, they had a smear attack against him and Aaron. Horrible things, they said. However, uh, in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices that he should take advantage of us. But I have seen many good and honorable pastors and churches destroyed by unfounded accusations. But as all, I've also seen churches destroyed by sinning pastors who stumble the church. So when a fact of rebuke has been established by two or three witnesses, then there needs to be an open public rebuke. David Guzik and his, boy, I got stuttering right there. And David Guzik in his commentary said this, many churches have had great trouble because sin in the leadership was not forthrightly dealt with. It is important that everyone understand that leadership in the church does not shield one from accountability. Actually, it makes one even more accountable. Peter had to be openly rebuked by Paul for hypocrisy. In Galatians 2.11, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Before certain men from James, referring to the half-brother of Jesus who was in charge of Jerusalem, he would eat with the Gentiles, and when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, notice where? Before them all. If you being a Jew live in the manner of a Gentile and not of the Jew, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So it wasn't necessarily a sin in this case. It was a stumbling block. It was an offensive thing. It was something that was confusing the Gentiles in the church. And so it's not necessarily a sin. It's not necessarily something where the pastor is going to get fired. I, I think that there's been many occasions where pastors have stumbled and sinned, and yet they continue to ministry after a, a season of getting some help and, and getting them back on track. It really is, depending on the situation, it depends on where the church is at. But he says in verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without with partiality. So again, you got to realize the Lord is on his throne observing you. Angels are around about him. We also know angels are here with us. Hebrews says, Watch how you treat strangers. You might be bumping into an angel who's checking in on you. And if you're spiritually in tune, you'll know it's not a man. If you, if you look in the Bible, every time an angel appeared, they said it was a young man. It looked like a young man. So uh, angels, if they would like, they can look just like another guy uh, that you might bump into, but it's an angel and, um, and so here he's saying, knowing that one day you're going to stand before God and give an account of all that we've done in our body, good and bad. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 
make choices on how you're dealing with sinning leaders, make sure you're doing it without partiality. Make sure you're doing it righteously and honorably before God. Because again, I've seen churches where they have been offended by the pastor. Sometimes the pastor, he was right. And sometimes the pastor wasn't right. But either way, he pushed hard. You know, whether it was in building projects, I've seen that. Um, I've seen sometimes pastors push hard for evangelism. And it, it was good, but it was also fleshly how he went about it. And when that season was over, either way, people were wounded by it. They were trying to heal. And while they're trying to, you know, get past that very difficult season, there's a little bit of stumbling in the pastor, and that's all they needed. Yeah, get rid of the guy, you know. And so it really wasn't righteous the way they were. It wasn't that he, he wasn't in sin or didn't do something wrong, but it wasn't righteous how the, the reasons why they were doing what they were doing to the pastor. And I've seen pastors hurt that way. On the other hand, I've seen pastors that should have been removed from the ministry, not removed because again, of favoritism. So again, we all have to stand before God and those who are in those places of making such decisions need to wrestle before God and all the holy angels that we are making a just decision on the future uh, of the man and of the church. So observe these things without prejudice, without partiality. In Proverbs 24, 23, these things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. In the New Testament, Jesus' enemies even talked to him about no partiality. And they were, Jesus consistently showed no partiality to the rich or the poor, the Jew or the Gentile. Matter of fact, in Matthew twenty two sixteen. I use, I'm using the NET version here because it actually uses the word partiality. But they sent to him their disciples along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are in truth. These guys are being deviates. And you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And you do not court anyone's favor. You don't treat the rich a little better than the poor because you show no partiality. But because Jesus showed no partiality, they tried to trip him up in some legal tactic. In Romans 2.11, it says, just in a very doctrinal book, in a very straightforward doctrinal way, it says, for there is no partiality with God. In James, it talks about the sin of partiality, separating the rich from the poor. And he says, those that are mistreating the poor are those who are treating the rich good because they're rich, giving them preferred seating and preferred service in the church, that they are committing a sin in the face of God. It's no small sin to show partiality. So the status they are in the community is the status they get in the church. No. In the church, Nobody is bringing in their outside status into the church. You may be wealthy in the community. In the church, you're just another guy. You may hold a position of political office in the community, but in the church, you're just another schmo. 
pick up the mop and, and, and clean that mess up. That is essential for a church to be healthy is that we are all just seen as equals brothers and sisters in the church, no matter what our status may be in the world. In Galatians 3, Paul says that there shouldn't be any partiality between race and gender either, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we're all one in the Lord. Well, in chapter 5, verse 22 now, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sin. Keep yourself pure. So showing no partiality could now go down to this as well. That if somebody has a desire in the ministry and you want to ordain them, he's saying give it time for the man to be seasoned in his ministry. So you're excited. The people are excited. Maybe it's the pastor's son or maybe it's a missionary son or whatever. We're going to do this because... You know, it's so, we're so excited about it. And he's saying, yes, it is wonderful to do that. But if you did it too quick, or you did it assuming a lot of stuff without really giving time to investigate what's really happening, then you could really end up um, suffering the consequences of, by people being stumbled. You know, you, you, you see that. You know, when you're ordaining somebody or you're hiring somebody, you're the hero. But when you got to fire somebody or you got to point out the guy we ordained has, has been living in sin the whole time, then now you're the zero. You know, you, you, everybody wants to be a hero, but if you don't take your time, you'll end up being the zero. So lay hands on him, but not quickly for that calling of ordination to happen. Keep yourself pure. So make sure your motives of why you're so excited to see this guy ordained, it's a pure motive. It's not, there's no self-seeking in it whatsoever. So you don't share in that man's sins. Again, if that man stumbles people because you put him in a place of leadership, it's going to reflect on you. Um, or if that person uh, was approved when they really weren't yet approved by God, ordination is not something we're doing. It's something... We see that God has done, and we're just recognizing that God has done it. Well, in verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Amen, amen. Drink a little wine. I like the Bible, man. It's a great, great book. First of all, this tells us that Timothy wasn't drinking any wine even though it was the medicine of choice for his day. I have a teaching, and I, it's out of Isaiah 28, if you want to go look on my archives of teaching, Isaiah 28. But I go through the scripture. I, I do not believe Jesus ever drank alcohol. I don't think the wine he made was alcohol. So it says very plainly, uh, and you follow it through from the Proverbs through the Old Testament, New Testament, that priests were to never drink alcohol of any kind if they were going into the temple to minister. Remember the story in Leviticus when they were going to open the tabernacle and Aaron, two of Aaron's sons had alcohol in their system. They go, both got vaporized. He said, when you're ministering, do not drink wine. Jesus made it clear, I never stopped ministering. 
My father ministers till now and I minister too. I never stop ministering. Remember they accused him on the Sabbath day. Hey, you're not supposed to be healing people on the Sabbath day. He's like, hey, I always ministry. I'm never off the clock. Proverbs 31, it says, it's not for kings or for wise men to ever drink. Let those who are dying drink. Let those who are depressed, suicidal, let them drink. But a king doesn't drink. Jesus made it clear he was a king. I am a king, but not of this world as it is right now. And what does he call us? Kings and priests. I think it's a very good argument. However, Paul says all things are permissible. There's no law. So on that note, I would say the wisest thing to do, follow the example of Jesus and don't drink. That was Paul's tradition as well, not to drink. Even when that was, you know, your choice was dirty water or wine. And he still chose the dirty water. So Paul, Timothy followed Paul's example identically. Matter of fact, Paul said, there's no one like Timothy that follows my example exactly. So Paul's example was no drinking. And even though Timothy needed the wine as a medicine, he still wasn't taking it. So it doesn't sound like he, Timothy's hearing this from Paul for the first time. It's basically saying, I've told you, and now I'm doubling down. Take some wine. Um, because you need to, to, you, the wine to help you get over these stomach issues. But again, all things are possible. There is no law for us. So people would call in and say, Chuck, is it okay to drink beer? Oh, I drink all the beer I want. Of course, he drank, drank no beer. But it, he was erring on the side of grace, not law. We don't have a New Testament law. We have no law. The only commandment we have is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Outside of that, we have no law. And so, you know, I've traveled the world and I, I know how wine is observed in most cultures. And I, I, again, I would not put it on anybody that, uh, you know, if you really are a good Christian, you won't drink wine. I, I would not say that. But I would say, I, I do believe scripturally and if you want to listen to the Isaiah 28 teaching, you'll see. I don't think Jesus ever drank wine. Except when he was on the cross dying. After he had said the seven saints, they once again pushed that wine concoction to his mouth. And he did drink. And then he died. He breathed, he breathed his last. So that's the only time he drank. And right as it says in Proverbs 31, when you're dying. And he actually was done with all his ministry. He did drink that and died. And, um, you know, the health and wealth groups, they have a problem with this because you're always supposed to be healed. You're always supposed to be wealthy. So why didn't Paul just pray for him and be healed? Remember in Acts 19, people were stealing Paul's little uh, sweat cloths and traveling hundreds of miles, laying them on the sick people. They were being healed. Laying them on people demon-possessed, the demon was coming out. So here's Paul with Timothy. Why can't he say, hey, I'll give you a clean pair of uh, underwear to use or, or, a, or a glove or a cloth of some type, you know, be healed. Why didn't Paul do that? I think, I think it's a pretty clear demonstration 
that Paul did not have miracles at his disposal at his will. That miracles happened in Paul's life and Paul's ministry like all of us when God wills, right? We see in 2 Timothy 4.20, Erastus had to stay at Corinth because Trophimus was left in Miletus sick, in Miletus sick. So one of the guys that were with him, they had to leave him behind because he just wasn't getting better and they had to let him stay there to recuperate. Of course, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was, if it was something physical or something spiritual, if he was struggling with a sin or, or what it was. We don't know. We just know that Satan was getting the advantage over on him in that situation. And so, again, to, to say that uh, the health and wealth gospel is saying God will always heal if you have enough faith is a lie. Well, finishing up in verse 24 and 25, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, and those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. These are, this is a very humbling verse. But in essence, he says, we really don't know the true heart of another individual. There are some men that we give it time, we observe everything we can observe, we investigate everything we can estimate, we lay hands upon them to be ordained. Some of those guys, a year later, 10 years later, 20 years later, are revealed that they've got this whole two-sided life of, of just hypocrisy going on, but they can hide it well. There's some men that can do that till the day they die. They can live out, as far as everybody else observing, they're living this perfectly holy life, and it won't be revealed until they stand before God. So Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 4, I would judge myself, but I'm not a good judge even of myself. I definitely can't judge you, and you definitely can't judge me. All I know is when we all stand before God, everything's going to be revealed. And he goes, I'm ready for that. I'm more than ready for God to shine a light and reveal everything there is about me. Because me being counted faithful by you means nothing. There's only one that I matters that counts me faithful, and that is God. And that's all he's asking. He's not asking me to be sinless. He's not asking me to be perfect. He's not asking me to, to, to try to be some Christian that nobody can be in this human body. He is asking me to be faithful. Faithful when God shows me a sin to confess that sin, repent, and go the other direction. To, to be faithful in my finances, to give all that God's required me to forgive, to witness to every person that God puts in my way to share the Lord with, just day by day. Am I just faithful with whatever God lays out today? That's all we can do. And if there's more than that, God's going to reveal it when he reveals it. I don't know, but I read these verses here, and I just say, God, if there's any hypocrisy in me, if there's anything that, that is not pleasing, reveal it now. I, I don't want it to be revealed some point in the future and, and continue on in, in a lie or hypocrisy. 
want to be holy and righteous and, and pure and that there's no skeletons in any closet. And, uh, and if all's revealed, there's no shame, but actually rejoicing in that lifestyle. Well, chapter six has uh, some interesting things we'll be covering in that that are very applicable to our day. Well, Lord, we thank you for these house cleaning items here in the church, these administrative things that we really don't need to know about until we have to know about them. And we've tucked them aside now in the warehouse of our hearts and our minds, information ready to be used when needed to be used. But we just yield ourselves before you, every one of us now, as ministers unto you, as people who affect other people. And we just say, Lord, it is a scary thing to stand before you and light shines and everything that's been done in secret is going to be shouted from the rooftops. That every heart, every thought, every word, every motive is going to be revealed. We just ask there would be nothing hidden in us at this point forward. If there's hypocrisy, if there's sin, if there's compromise, Lord, we just don't want it. We want to be free. We want to be full of joy. We, we want to be truly a light and a salt of the world in sincerity, not in hypocrisy, in truth, not with a shadow of truth. Shine in us and through us. Forgive us, cleanse us, wash us, heal us. We know that every one of us falls short of the glory of God every single day. We all sin every day. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, but yet, Lord, we come knowing that you can do even a greater work of grace in us. As we let the word of God bring us to this humble place, this is a time you might want to come to the Lord's table. Just remember that all your sins were broken through Christ, paid for in Christ. And now it's the joy. He stands over you singing. The joy as the prodigal son's dad, the joy running out to you and welcoming you and clothing you and putting sandals upon your feet and a ring upon that we, all we have to do is confess our sin, which is to agree with God. He calls sin a sin. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us be humble that God might lift us up. And then the blood that it has cleansed, is cleansed, will cleanse all our sins that we do today and tomorrow will stand with like a bride in her wedding dress, perfectly white, no spot nor blemish, but perfect before the Father, presented by our husband Jesus to the Father, perfect in righteousness by his blood that he has shed. Lord, we seek you, God. We want to draw near to you now, Lord. And this couple of songs here, Lord, just draw us into your presence in Jesus' name.